0: As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and proclaiming the good news, the chief priests and the school doing these things came to him and said, tell us by what authority are you doing these things? Who is it who gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. You tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or of human origin? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he'll say, well, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, all the people will stone us because they're convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know its origin. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word today. I pray, as I always do, that you'll open our eyes to the wonders of it. God, you have given us truth that we can hold in our hands, uh, that we can anchor our lives to. And I thank you that it is sufficient. Holy Spirit, translate for our hearts today what each one has need of. And I thank you that we will be encouraged by our time with you today. In Jesus name. Amen. Amen. So we're talking about questioning authority this morning. And I know that I look young now. Thank you. (laughs) Appreciate that. What I was going to say is I know I look young now for my age, but you should have seen me. And to prove that, I was at Walmart a few weeks ago before Christmas and I was buying some pocket knives for a family gift exchange that we were doing. And I went to the self checkout, because that's what I do. And I swiped it and it said assistance needed. And so I waved the lady over and she comes over and she puts her little code in. And then it says, you know, you must be 16 or older to to buy these pocket knives. Is this customer at least 16 or older? And she turned and she looked at me and she said, do you have your ID? And I said, I'm getting carded for pocket knives. (laughs) And I handed it to her. She looked at it. She looked at me. She's like, OK. I said, you want me to hug your neck, don't you? So see, I do look young for my age. But you should have seen me when I was about 21, 22, 23, when I was getting started in the working world. I've always worked around people and I always looked significantly younger than I actually was, which I was already young, but I looked even younger than that. So I probably looked less than 16 when I was uh, 23, And what I, what I ran into a lot of times, whether it was when I was working at Walmart or when I started working at the bank, uh, when I was working at the bank, I was uh, started as a consumer loan officer and I would get loan applications, you know, for debt consolidations or car loans or personal loans, whatever. And I would review them and see if it met the standards for loan approval. And if it did, I would go through that conversation with the customer. And if it didn't, I'd have to go through the denial conversation. And more times than not, when I've got one on my desk and it's going to be a denial, when they would walk into my office, they would look around my office, and they would look at me, and they would say, is this your office? Yeah, it's my office. You look really young to be in this office. Well, I, I appreciate that. Like, you look so young to be in this office. And, and again, it just seemed like, it wasn't that I was denying them because they were asking me that. It just didn't, it, But it seemed like the ones that had a, had a feeling that it might be a negative answer that day. You know, we're questioning, you know, my, my standing to be there. I had one after I had been there for, for a few years. I had made a decision on a, on a check and the, and the gentleman was upset because he wasn't going to be able to get his money that day like he thought he was going to be able to. And he said, well, who decided this? I said, I did. He said, so you did. <laughs> yeah. You just decided it. Yes. You, you decided, so you just decided, and then that's what it is. <laughs> it's like, y- yes, yes. Well, how do, you, how do you decide? So, well, they have me do this because I've got years of training and experience, and this is how, how we do it. So, you just decided. <laughs> right? And so, what was he doing? He was questioning my authority to make that decision because he didn't like the decision and how it was going to impact him. And, and that's what we're going to talk about today because we don't think about it often. But, but authority and authority structure in our life is very impactful. So, while I was studying this, I came across uh, an essay that was written back in 1979 by a Yale law professor. And he said that every ethical or legal system, because he was a Yale law professor, every ethical or legal system uh, will be differentiated By the answer it gives to one key question, and and that question is, who among us ought to be able to declare law that must be obeyed? And he called the question that that comes up, the the great says who, right? Because we've done that in life. When we hear an instruction or we hear a rule, our response is often, who said that was the rule? Who says that's the way it is? Says who that I have to, to do that? Well, you can't go in this door. You have to go in that door. S- says who? Right? He says that every ethical and legal system is going to be differentiated by the answer it gives to the question. Who among us ought to be able to declare law that must be obeyed? Because what he knew was for the law or for the instruction to stand up. The test of time, then the one who gives it must also be able to stand up. For the law and the instruction to stand, the lawgiver and the instructor must also be able to stand against what? Questioning. Who, who, are you? who are you to tell me this? So it must stand up. And then he even pointed out there's only one that can stand up to that type of scrutiny over time, and it's God Himself. Because God Himself is omnipotent and omniscient. Omnipresent. He's completely powerful and all knowing. He's the only one that can stand up to that level of scrutiny. So he's the only ones whose instructions can stand. Because when you ask says who. You need a sufficient answer. Right. So think about things that the scripture scripture says. It, it, It says, you know, thou shalt not commit adultery. Why? Because it knows that will destroy not only your life, but the lives of others who are involved. But if you just hear you ought not to commit adultery, you might ask, who says? Who says that I ought not commit adultery? I might want to commit adultery. I might even feel like I would like to commit adultery. So who says that I shouldn't or I ought not commit adultery? And you see real quick how we can question the authority and move it out of the way if we judge it to be insufficient. He says that God alone is the one that's able to stand in that position as the lawgiver who is past questioning. And then he also said, either God exists or He does not. But if He doesn't, then nothing else can take His place. Either God exists or He does not. And if He doesn't, Like some in society believe that he does not. Nothing else can take his place. You can't say, well, I don't believe in God and his authority because he says things that I don't like. I instead believe that this is the authority and I'm going to elevate it to the level of him. Except it's not able to stand in that spot past questioning like he would be able to. The says who wins out when there is no God. There's no other way, if there's no God, that you can deem one action to be moral and another action to be immoral. There's no way that you can do that. Because if that's the case and there is no God, you can't say that this is moral and this is immoral. You can only say, I like this. I don't like this. And if you reach that point, that it's I like this or I don't like this, who gets to decide and put their subjective decision on what is done and what is not done? And some people would say, we'll just let the majority decide. We'll just take a vote, and whatever the vote is, that's what we'll do. Because if the majority of the people say we should do it, it must be the right thing to do, right? Except then, what keeps the next step from being well? The majority has decided that the minority is uh, very disruptive because they don't agree with what we're doing, what we said, what we voted on. The minority is is very disruptive, so we, we we're going to vote to just eliminate the minority, and we'll all get along much better. We'll just exterminate the minority, those that disagree with us. And what would keep? majority from doing that, who would say that it was wrong? See? You see how the the question of authority is so important in our life. Because you can reach that point real quick. The says we do so, we're just going to take your money and we're going to split it up amongst us. You may not like that, but that's what we voted on. That's what we decided we're going to do. And then the says, who comes Well, who says that we can't do that? And if there's not uh, one in that place with full authority and power and knowledge, if there's not God in that place, you can't put somebody in there as a substitute because they're not going to be the things that are required to hold that position. Okay, let's go back to the text. So Jesus is dealing with this same principle in Luke 20. Now remember, we hadn't been here in a little bit. Remember where we are in the book. Jesus has been preaching and teaching. The kingdom of God is at hand. He's been uh, healing. He's been showing His authority over nature, over uh, demons and spirits, over the physical body. Uh, He's been demonstrating His authority in all of these arenas, and then especially in teaching and preaching. And then He has now turned His face towards Jerusalem, towards the capital city. And there's been a lot of uh, expectation and anticipation about Him going to Jerusalem, and what's He going to do when He gets there, and what's He going say when he gets there because he has been preaching what something that's different from what we're seeing in application in Jerusalem. What's going to happen? And you remember he came in riding on a donkey just as the scriptures had prophesied that he would and people were shouting and and celebrating, you know, blessed is he who who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And the spiritual leaders uh, said, you need to rebuke your followers for, for saying these types of things. And he said, listen, this song must be sung, essentially. He said, if they didn't say this, then even the stones would cry out because what's happening right now, what was prophesied long ago, it's so pivotal and so powerful that it, it, it the fact that it's taking place right now, nature itself would, would just shout out if it wasn't coming out of their mouths. And then he came into town and he went to the temple and he cleared it out. There were people who were selling sacrifices in the temple uh, who were profiting off of the worship of God and, and dishonoring God in doing so. And he cleared it out. And what did he say? You know, The scripture says, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves and robbers. So he's doing some stuff. Right. And then he's preaching in the same temple he's teaching and he's declaring the good news. And then the chief priests, the scribes and the elders come up to him one day when he was teaching and, say, and said, tell us by what authority you are doing this. Who gave you this authority? And why would they ask that? Because they didn't like what it was that he was doing. They didn't like what it was that he was saying. He was confronting sin in their life. He was confronting their lifestyle. He was confronting, even at a certain point, their livelihood and money that was coming to them. Right. It's probably from some of the activities that were going on in the temple. So they come to him and they're like, by whose authority are you doing this? The says who? Right. Who says that you, you can just come in here and talk to us like this? Who says that you can come in and, and do these things? Who's giving you the power or the right to give these orders and make these decisions and command obedience? And obviously the says who, the who's in authority, on whose authority is this being done? It's a theological question for us. It's a big overarching question for us, but it's also a practical question. How do we decide what we do and what we don't do? How do we decide what we listen to and what we don't listen to? Because it does affect our motives, our actions, and even our thoughts. But the priests and the scribes and and the leaders of of the temple come to him and they ask this question. Who gave you the authority to do this? On whose authority are you doing this? Now, what were, what were they wanting Him to say? They were wanting Him to say, God Almighty gave me the God, the Father in Heaven. I'm the Son of God. I'm Jesus Christ. I'm the one that was prophesied. That's what they were wanting Him to say. And not so they could worship Him. Not, the, not so they could go, oh good, we were hoping so. Right? They were wanting him to say that in front of the people so that they could accuse him of blasphemy and have him arrested and judged so that he could be removed out of the way. You're a problem for us. We want you moved out of the way. They wanted to destroy him because they didn't like what he was saying. They didn't like what he was teaching. They didn't like what he was doing. They were challenging his authority because they had set themselves in their mindset, in their lifestyle, in their sin as in opposition to him. And we know that they wanted to kill him. It'll say that here in a little bit. They wanted to kill him, but they didn't feel like they could at that point. So they were wanting him to do something to dig his own hole so that they could then take him out. Get this guy out of the way. He's just causing trouble. And of course, Jesus, when they come to him because he's Jesus, sees right through them. Just like he sees right through me and you when we make excuses or we try to pretend or we try to be a way that that we're not. He sees right to the heart and he knows what's going on there and what their intentions are. And thankfully, when we do that, he still loves us and tells us the truth. I believe he still loved them because he told them the truth, but he did it without giving them the win that they wanted. They thought they had him trapped. Who, Who gives you the authority to do this? They said, tell us. And he said, "Okay, but first you tell me, I'm going to ask you a question. And you tell me, was the baptism of John, John the Baptist, from heaven or from human origin? Was it from heaven? Was it from God? Or was it from man? And we've talked about John's baptism before. We, we, we kind of have gotten used to the idea of baptism because it's always been since we've been alive. But it was a new thing when John went out to the River Jordan and started baptizing people. That wasn't something that was done before. There were two types of baptism. One of them was just ceremonial cleansing in the temple. You would dip in the mikvah to make sure that you were clean to demonstrate you know, what, that you needed to be clean to enter into the presence of God. And then the other one was when there was a foreigner, someone who was from the outside who wanted to, to, to become a member of the nation of Israel, then they would be baptized into the nation. But this whole baptism for repentance was brand new. And John wasn't someone who would have been qualified by their terms and by their systems his daddy was a priest zechariah but he lived out in the wilderness he was kind of a wild man he wore camel skins and, and ate locusts and wild honey and preached about things that made them uncomfortable and so jesus said you tell me was his baptism from god was it from heaven was it decreed from on high that he operate in in authority because of that or was it just for man that he just decided that that's what he was going to do? Y'all want to know by what authority I'm doing this? Tell me John's baptism. Was it from heaven or was it from men? And he stumped them. They had to go kind of put their heads together. It says they discussed it among themselves. And this was something they were used to. They didn't have a lot of answers. The, The Pharisees and the religious leaders would ask a lot of questions and there would be a lot of just arguing and debates and discussions and they wouldn't necessarily land on anything. You know, it wasn't who had answers. It was who, had, who could ask the best question. And Jesus even beat them at that. But they gather around and they're talking about it amongst themselves. They're like, what should we say? Because if we say it's from heaven, he's going to ask us why we didn't get baptized, why we didn't believe it, why we treated John the way that we did so we can't say it's from heaven. If we say it's from man, the people are going to turn against us because they believe that John's a prophet. We don't believe that John was a prophet, but they believe he was a prophet. They'll probably stone us. So out of self-interest, they said, we don't know. <laughs> we don't know. And That wasn't true. Right. They had an opinion. But they didn't say it. Why? Because they knew that it would be negative for them. They said, we don't know. So Jesus in verse eight said, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, he would tell them later. And we're going to get to that where he would uh, declare who he was. And then you see what happened. They accused him of blasphemy and, and condemned him and then wanted him and had him to be executed. But even we know that even in that, he didn't cede his authority over to them. They were only able to do what he allowed them to do. So this question of authority is an important one in our life. That authority be able to stand when it's questioned. They questioned Jesus' authority. It was able to stand because he's Jesus. But this says who, this big question is important for us. Because if God is who He says that He is and He does what He says that He does, then we ought to do what He says we ought to do. And we ought not to do what He says we ought not to do. And if, he, if we want to deny that, like, well, I don't like what God tells me not to do. I might like to do something that He tells me not to do. There's no way for me to replace Him with anything that's at the same level that he is, because it all comes back to that says who? Who says I can't do that? Well, you have to do this. Who says? It's an appeal to an authority that is above question. And he's the only one that is above questioning. Because again, who, who says the majority? Well, that can change. I mean, that changes with the wind. That changes with the season, what the majority thinks is right and okay. And then where do they get their idea about what's right and what's good and what's okay to be done? So, after Jesus had just completely roasted them at their own game, he told a story, he told a parable in, starting in verse 9. He said, Now it says, Now he began to tell the people this parable. So, it's right on the back of what just happened. A man planted a vineyard and leased it to tenant farmers and went away for a long time. And at harvest time, he sent a servant to the farmers so that they might give him some fruit from the vineyard. But the farmers beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent yet another servant, but they beat that one too and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third, but they wounded this one too and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what should I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenant farmers saw him, they discussed it among themselves and said, this is the heir, let's kill him so that the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those farmers and give the vineyard to others. But when they heard this, they said, that must never happen. But he looked at them and said, then what is the meaning of this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. But on whomever it falls, it will shatter him. So he tells them this story when he's when they're questioning his authority. He said there was a man who planted a vineyard. He was the owner of the vineyard and he planted it and he went away for a long time. But he left it in the possession of tenant farmers, people that were renting it from him. Right, And so after a t- at some time had passed and the harvest was supposed to be coming in, the, the master of the vineyard sent a servant to collect part of the harvest, to collect his part. Now what is that? That's a reminder that somebody else owns this. This belongs to somebody else and that he must be honored because without him we wouldn't even be here. But the tenant farmers, the ones that were there, the master has been away for a long time. They've started to act like they own the vineyard. And so when the servant comes, it's a reminder that they don't. So what do they do? They react aggressively. They they beat him and send him away. And so the master sends another one to remind him, no, 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 I'm the master of the vineyard. You know, you, you have to respect that authority. They beat the next one and shame him and send him out. He sends even another servant the third time. Same thing happens. And the master of the vineyard goes, what should I do? They're not respecting My authority. I own this vineyard. They're not respecting my authority. I know what I'll do. I'll send my beloved son. Surely they'll respect my son. This is the clearest example of my authority that my own son is coming to remind them who actually owns the vineyard. And then when he comes, they even say, this is the heir. If we kill him, then it's ours for sure. So it says they throw him out of the vineyard and they kill him and says, what will the master of the vineyard do then? Well, he just let it go and go, well, I guess they own the vineyard now. I guess it's theirs. No, because he owns it. He comes and clears it out, takes them all out because they've been rebellious, disobedient, violent, disrespecting his authority. And then says, what does he do? He gives it to somebody else. He gives it to somebody else. And they hear Jesus tell this story. And they're like, these are awful people. I can't believe somebody would do this. This should never happen in Israel. Tell me their names. Who did this? this? This should never happen. And Jesus, in, in not so many words, says, it's happening right now. It's happening right now. He said, what else does the scripture mean when it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? He said, God, God put all of this here. He created everything and he created it to work a certain way. And he sent the prophets to remind you that you were doing it wrong. And you beat them and disrespected them and shamed them and cast them out and didn't listen to them and kept doing things your own way. He said, and then he he sent his own son and you're going to throw him out of the vineyard and you're going to kill him because Jesus was crucified outside of the city. He said, you're going to throw even the son out and and, and kill him. He's like, and I don't know what you think is going to happen that he's just going to go. Well, I mean, I guess they win. No, the true authority is going to show up, exercise that authority on the disobedient and the rebellious and then set everything back up again with others that he puts in there. That's how you and me got invited. Okay, we won't spend a lot of time on that, but he came first to the house of Israel and they rejected him. And so then he opened it up to people like you and me. But he says this is happening right now. This is the stone that the builders rejected, the one that you thought wasn't important, the one that you thought didn't have authority. He said, it's become the chief cornerstone. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken, but on whomever it falls, they will be crushed. He said, it's happening right now. It's happening right now. What will you do? Will you be broken Falling on the stone or will you be crushed when it falls on you? What's he telling them? He's like, you can either accept my authority now and be broken because you, you, you must be broken. Or you can continue to reject my authority and eventually it's going to crush you. Eventually it's going to crush you. And, and, and we see that and it's kind of we think it's kind of veiled, but they knew what he meant because you look at verse 19. It says, then the scribes and the chief priests looked for a way to get their hands on him that very hour because they knew he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. They throw in there at the end, he was like they weren't confused about what he meant. They understood he's saying that we are the tenant farmers And he's disrespecting us. So they they wanted to lay their hands on him even then. Because they were still saying, who says or says who? Because they didn't want to have to listen to what he was saying. Again, authority is a theological question for us. Who makes the rules? Who makes the rules? And can they stand if they're questioned? It's a big question. It's also a practical question because it affects how we think and how we act. Is there truth? Is there such a thing as right and wrong? Or can I just go off of how I feel and what I like? And if I get enough people to agree with me on how we feel and what we like, that we can just do that for our our culture, our civilization, our community. Now, there cannot be Morality or moral law that is above question. Unless there is an authority that it comes from that is above question. Everything else won't stand up to the says who of the majority. Everything else won't stand up. You see that with the tenant farmers treating the vineyard like they owned it. And you can see the same rebellion working its way out in our hearts. When through whatever means he chooses, Jesus confronts us about sin and rebellion in our life. Whether through his scripture, through through the preaching of his word, his Holy Spirit convicting us on the inside that he brings things to us and goes, this is not right. This is not good for you. It's not going to lead to life and godliness. You need to address this. We don't like that. Just like the leaders in the temple, they, we don't like to be told that we're doing something wrong. And so how we respond to that is most important. Because how we respond to that says who will, will affect how we think and how we live. Because if we only answer to ourselves, we're only going to do what feels good. We're only going to do what we like. We're never going to do what we don't like. And we're never going to do what doesn't feel Good, And that will lead us into despising the the actual truth. Because things that we like and things that we feel good, how often are those things good for us? And even if they are, we, we will exercise them in a measure or in a volume that's not good for us. So in this story and in our life, Jesus confronts sin... And he points out, this is not how it was created to be. This is how it was created to be in function. This is the truth. And then our decision is what do we do with that authority? Because he says those who fall on this stone will be broken. There's a breaking when we lay down our will and our desires and our thoughts before him. I wanted to do this. You're telling me I shouldn't. I'm not going to do that. There's a breaking there. It's not comfortable and it's not enjoyable. There's a breaking, but he says you can either fall on the stone and be broken or the stone fall on you and be crushed, shattered to pieces. Be like one of those tenant farmers who were just living like they had all the time in the world. And like they ran things until the actual owner of the vineyard showed up and then things didn't go well. That's what he's talking about, this falling on. Uh, so, So as we... Get ready to wrap up. I'm going to give you just a couple of things to watch out for. A couple of things to watch out for. When Christ confronts sin in our life, confronts attitudes in our life that aren't biblical or godly, how are we going to respond? There's some ways that we can respond that aren't going to be good and aren't going to be helpful. right? The the first way is, is to hear that, feel that, take that on and then go, yeah, but I think Jesus just wants me to be happy. I mean, my Jesus just wants me to be happy. He's loving and he's good. He just wants me to be happy. He, he, he wouldn't ask me to do that because that's not going to make me. I think I'd rather do this. I'd rather not do that. That's going to be difficult. That's going to be hard. He wants me to be happy. And we've heard that, right? which basically means my Jesus lets me do what I want. My Jesus lets me do what I like to do, and he just lets me because he wants me to be happy when what we know is is that Jesus is much more interested in our holiness than our happiness because it's in our holiness that we find true joy. Happiness is fleeting. Joy endures through all situations. You, you can say he wants me to be happy, but I think you have to include some type of word like he wants me to ultimately be happy. He wants me to see the end in happiness because he's going to ask me to do some things that I'm not going to enjoy, that are not going to make me happy, but in the end are going to be best for me. Because when my flesh is pulling me this way, it doesn't make me happy to pull back and say, no, I'm going to walk this way. That's not enjoyable. It's not enjoyable to clean your house. But at the end of the day, it's enjoyable to have a clean house. See what I'm saying? Jesus just wants me to be happy. So if it would make me unhappy or make me kind of difficult, he he wouldn't want me to do that. He wouldn't want me to do that. That's one thing we don't want to fall into. The other one is there seems to be this new definition of Grace. That grace means that I can still do whatever I want to do, whatever I feel like doing. And at the end of the day, he has to accept me because, you know, grace like it suspends all the commandments uh, for life and godliness that he had previously uh, put forth. And it's like those don't matter anymore, you know, because grace So I can just say Jesus has grace on me and then I can go and live any kind of way I want to, you know, because grace and grace is abundant in our life. Where sin has abounded, grace has much more abounded. But even the Apostle Paul said, should we continue in sin so grace can abound? God forbid He's like, some of y'all have this idea that the more you sin, the more glory God gets because the more grace he's pouring out on your life. That shouldn't be your goal. Right. And so this this idea that I can live and that there be no submission to his authority. And yet he's still going to accept me because, you know, grace. And that's not demeaning grace. It's calling back to the true purpose of grace. Remember, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. I got here because of his grace. He said, but his grace towards me is not going to be in vain. I'm going to take what he's given me and I'm going to work harder than everybody else. Because his grace is sufficient for me. His strength is made perfect in my weakness. It actually gives me the ability to do the things that he's called me to do. Amen. (laughs) So Jesus just wants me to be happy. Toss that away. New definition of grace. Toss that out. And then sometimes we just go... If he brings something up, either through the scripture, through our accountability with brothers and sisters that we're walking with, that that he points something out, it's like, we need to work on this. you got to get this out of here because this is going to cause you heartache in the future. It's going to bring you joy in the future to get this gone. But we don't want to do that either because we like it too much or we feel like it would be too difficult. So we try to bargain and go, what if I start volunteering for the nursery instead? (laughs) What if I say I'm going to get up 30 minutes earlier and, and read my Bible instead of just 15 minutes early? Like, would that be OK? <laughs> right. Let's stop talking about this. Let's see if I can outweigh it by just doing more when he's like, I came and talked to you specifically about this. We don't get to make counteroffers to Jesus. He's not sitting there going, well, I mean, he, he makes a good point. Sounds like a good deal. No, he's going to say, I I asked you about this. Follow me in this. Trust me in this. Because just like a a good and a right parent, when he tells us no about something, it's not because he's trying to keep us from joy and happiness. It's because he knows that that will in the end steal joy and happiness from us. When good and right parents say no, it's not because they hate joy and hate fun. It's because they know if you do this, it's going to hurt you or take joy from you later on. It's the reason we don't let our kids stay up till four o'clock in the morning. Why? Because tomorrow they're going to be awful. And we know that. And so it's going to steal joy from you tomorrow. So we're going to walk in this today. Amen. So you have this question of authority. When we don't like it we say, says who? I want to see the manager. Is this how you handle it with all your your customers? I want to to talk to someone who can make this decision. Why? Because what what we've heard so far we don't like. And so we're calling into question authority. But see if we just redefining the authority of Jesus Christ, the authority of Scripture doesn't uh, remove me from having to suffer under the insufficiency of walking on my own. Just saying, I don't like it, I'm not going to follow it, off I go. Just like the essay writer said, if you remove God from existence in your life, nothing else can replace Him. Nothing else is sufficient to replace Him. So then what are you going to do? Then what are we going to do? I mean, why don't you stand up with me? I'll get ready to wrap up. Andrew, if you'll come up, we'll we'll pray and we'll sing together. But this is what you have to ask yourself in your own life when he confronts you about truth in an area. What's your response going to be? What is your response going to be? He had confronted the, the temple leaders, the scribes and the chief priests, the elders over what they were doing, their mindset, how they were living, how they were treating people, how they were making money. He had called all of that in front of them and basically said, this is not right. And they had a choice. They could have listened and taken it and said, no, you know what? You're right. That, that wasn't right. We shouldn't have been doing that. We repent of that. We're going to change the way that we think about that. We're going to submit to your authority in this because we believe you. We trust you. And we know that you're good and we're going to follow you in in worshiping faithfulness from here on. Right. That would have been the perfect answer. Instead, what did they do? Who says you can just come in here and tell us what what, what to do and what not to do? Who says that you have the authority? Where did you get that? And calling it into question, why? Because we didn't want to listen to it. We didn't want to obey it. And there's always going to be a part of you on this side of heaven that when you get instruction from him, goes, "Mm, I don't want to do that. I don't want to forgive. I don't want to just let them off the hook after what they did. I don't want to submit myself to something that's going to you know, give people the opportunity to, to, to speak against me. I don't want to put myself out there like that. That's going to be uncomfortable. That's going to cause me issue. I don't want to do. It. There's always going to be that aversion to submission to authority. There's always going to be the, the want to to rebel and do it our way way. And when that happens with him, we need to confess and repent and say, you are the authority. I wouldn't want anybody else trying to sit in that seat in my life because you're the only one that's sufficient to be able to do it. You're the only one that can stand up to the says who you're the only one that doesn't change. And he's also the only one who knows how it was created to function. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, let us not be like those who have the truth standing in front of them and instead withdrew into their own hearts, into their own pride, into their own selfishness and self-interest. Let us not be like that. Let us take this example and say, Lord, not, let it not be said of us. Let it not be said of us that we were the tenant farmers who were put in a garden we didn't deserve to be in, that we didn't have ownership in and start to feel like we we, we deserved to be there on our own, like it was ours and not yours. Lord, when that first servant comes to remind us that this belongs to somebody else and don't forget to honor and respect That authority that we listen and we take it to heart. Even in that example, you gave them three chances and then you sent your son. You you over and over came, and I thank you for your graciousness towards us to over and over present to us areas of our life that need to line up more closely with your authority. I thank you for that. I thank you that you're gracious to give us a second chance, a third chance, and you've sent your only begotten son. And if you've not withheld him from us, will you not with, would you withhold any good thing? We thank you for your goodness in our life. We thank you for your mercy when we have rebelled, when we've tried to do it our own way, when we've tried to buck that authority. And I thank you for your forgiveness when we repent, that when we return and repent, you don't despise us, but you receive us and you pick us back up and you set us on the right path. Lord, and I thank you that we, we will stand in the covering and the safety of your authority. That we don't have to figure it out on our own. You have given us truth that can stand, has stood, and will stand for all times and through all generations. We love you and we thank you. As we get ready to go today, I thank you that... You protect us, keep us safe, that we go in unity together as we leave. Lord, if there's any from among us that that are weak in their body today, we, we pray strength upon them, healing and restoration in the name of Jesus. If there's any that are confused or not at peace in their heart and in their mind today, we bind that fearfulness in the name of Jesus and we lose the spirit of faith to act. Holy Spirit, comfort us where we are and give us what we need because you love us so much. I thank you that in the multitude of our anxieties that can swell up within us, your comforts delight our soul, as the psalmist said. I thank you that we'll go through this week mindful that we are are men and women of authority and we're also men and women under authority. That we go out into this world not as tenant farmers doing our own thing, but you've created us in your image to image you to this creation. And I thank you that we will respect that and we'll walk in that in the name of Jesus. I thank you for your goodness towards us in his name. Amen.